And as Preston said earlier, RUF is a place that we want to be um, open and safe for you, whether you are convinced as a Christian, you know what you believe and um, you're convinced of it as a Christian, or if you're convinced skeptic, if, you're, if you know what you believe and you don't believe um, in Christianity, or if you find yourself somewhere in between that you are not quite sure what you believe. We want this to be a, a place where you can bring your questions, hone them, um, and figure out what it is that you believe for yourself. Um, <clears throat> really glad you're here tonight. If it's your first time or you've brought a friend with you tonight, thank you. Um, it's good to have you all here with us this evening. Um, so I want to start tonight by asking a question. Do you ever feel busy? Yeah, of course you do. Okay. Um, there's an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago called The Busy Trap, written, was written by a guy named Tim Creter. Whoa, look at the lights. <laughs> Just keep it, I mean, dramatic effect. It's good. Um, the, uh, and he says in this, in this article that uh, the American greeting, when we say, how are you, the response is busy. Right? How are you doing? We say we're busy. We say we're so busy. We're crazy busy. Um, and then we respond to this with this kind of congratulation. We say, you know, that's a good problem to have. Or if someone says, I'm busy. And you say, well, it's better than the opposite. Right? Do you guys hear yourself or hear people using this the way we talk to each other? Um, and he writes that we're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety because we're addicted to busyness and dread what we might have to face in its absence. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. In an article in Slate.com, a woman named Hannah Rosen wrote this about our culture. She says that in our culture, busyness is a virtue. So people are terrified of hearing that they may have empty time, right? We're terrified of hearing that our time might be empty because it's like being told that you're obsolete. Um, I read an anecdote this week from a woman from another culture who came to the U.S. and she heard people introduce themselves and say that they're busy so much that she started introducing herself as, hi, I'm busy, because she thought that's how Americans talk to each other. Like, that's our greeting. Um, so last spring in the Odyssey, I don't know if you all know this online publication that some Wake Forest students write for, um, a Wake Forest student, Nicolette McCann, I don't know Nicolette, but she wrote a piece called Work Forest, a Lifestyle, um, and she writes this. She says, um, she writes, I haven't slept in 48 hours. Believe it or not, I actually heard this phrase come out of someone's mouth. And to be honest, I've heard it come out of multiple people's mouths. But you're not all that surprised, are you? The real question is, why aren't you surprised? She writes, I'm not proud to say it, but Wake breeds a culture of kids that feel unproductive unless they are doing something every minute of every day. And granted, that may be because we are the ones who are going to grow up to be the future leaders of our generation, to quote my communications professor. But if I cannot even take an hour out of my day to catch up on my favorite Netflix shows without feeling guilty, there's something wrong. Have you all felt this? Do you guys feel busy? Um, and this reveals for us that there's this relationship between work and rest, and um, we're not really sure how they hang together, right? Um, rather than having time when we work and time when we rest and having them be separate, we end up just being busy all the time and end up feeling anxious about it. So tonight we're going to read um, a passage from the Bible together, and we're going to ask the question, what, um, what might the Bible have to say about our work and about our rest and about our busyness? So we're going to read Psalm 127, and this is printed on the backside of your neon green paper. Um, and um, 
I'm going to read this and then pray. This is, um, this is the word of God. This is God's word for us. He gives it to us because he loves us. He gives it to you because he loves you. Um, so I'm going to read this. This is Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and ask now that you would open to it, open it to us, that we would make sense of it, make sense of our own lives um, and how you provide for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for this talk tonight, I got a lot of help from two books in particular. One is called Crazy Busy. It's written by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. And the other one is called Work Matters by a guy named Tom Nelson. Um, and the outline for tonight's talk is on the back of your bulletin. Um, and so we're going to look at what is the, the goodness of work, the vanity of self-sufficiency, and then the work of God. So first, the goodness of work. Um, work is tied to our identity as humans. Um, Mary Clark and I love Pixar and um, love all things Pixar. And one of our favorite, well, I don't know if it's our favorite, but one of the Pixar movies we really enjoyed was Wally. Have y'all seen Wally? So Wally tells the story of like post-apocalyptic Earth, and it zooms in on this robot named Wally, whose job is to clean up the mess, the destruction that humans left on Earth. So he's he's just cleaning up all the trash that humans left behind, and humans all live on this space station, um, far away. And so Wally's the main robot. He meets this lady robot named Eve. They fall in love and have robot romance. Um, gotta love robot romance. And then he follows her to the space station where the humans who made a mess out of Earth are now living. And, um, and then we, the audience, are shown this image of this utopian, carefree, work-free existence. And that's fundamental to what's happening. They don't work. Um, and uh, what we see are these humans that are weighted hand and foot, weighted on hand and foot by robots, attending to their every whim and every desire. And the result are pampered, self-indulgent, bored couch potatoes. Um, in the future, these adult humans now resemble giant babies. Um, they are doing nothing but cruising around on cushy, padded, lazy boys, eyes fixed on video screens, drinking big gulps. And there's actually a scene when they're supposed to go back to Earth, I believe, and they don't have the bone density to go back because they've done nothing for so long. And why is this? This is because we as humans are not designed to do nothing, right? We're designed to work. The Bible tells us that when God created us as humans, he designed not only for us to rest and to play, but also to work. In the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all things. He declared it good. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he created us, mankind, humans, and he, he declared it very good. And he placed our first parents in a garden and gave them work. Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. As image bearers of God, we are designed to be like him in working and keeping, or building and guarding. All right, look at verse 1 of Psalm 127. These are the categories that the psalmist used, that working or building the city, um, and then guarding, keeping, watching over the city. 
Right? God could have made us like those post-future couch potatoes of Wally, but he didn't. Instead, he created us to work. Why? So that we could build and we could watch over things to his glory. Um, building and watching over. This is something we get. This is fundamental to what it means to be human. Um, I observe it in my children. So Leo, our son, is four, and he's really into Legos right now. And it's really, he doesn't like the plans. He just creates, builds this stuff on his own. And then a second after he's built it, he stands fierce guard over it because his little sister, Mary Landon, loves to wreck everything that he builds, right? So he builds stuff, and then he guards it, right? He builds the city, and then he watches over it. And we do this too. Like this is, this is what human culture is. Um, this is what we do as humans when we build culture. We build homes and then cities and then societies. Um, what we refer to as human prosperity. And then we watch over it. We guard it. We protect it. We develop massive military might in order to, pre- to prevent others from destroying it. Right? We keep it safe. So prosperity, the building, and security, the keeping it safe, is what our work is after. This is why we work. And Psalm 127 is saying that prosperity and security are not ultimately your accomplishments, but they are actually gifts from God. So work is good, but when we try to do it ourselves, it is done in vain. So this word here, vain or vanity, like when we think of vanity, what do we think of? We think of somebody who's self-obsessed, right? Kind of uh, looking at yourself in the mirror all the time, that song, I bet you think that song, this song is about you, like you're so vain, right? So we, we, we think vanity, we think these categories of self-obsession. Um, but vanity here is a word that describes both the cause of pride or the cause and the result of pride. Um, so the cause, the self-obsession and the result. And synonyms for it would be like emptiness or worthlessness, so how does this pride, how does vanity manifest itself in our work? And so when I'm, I'm going to describe, um, I think there are five P's of pride manifesting itself in our work. And I want you to think of, think of your work, like the work that you're doing in building and guarding. And primarily, I'd say this happens for you all in your, your schoolwork, um, the work that you're doing for your classes, uh, the stuff that you're spending the meat of your time here working on. But then also in your relationships, right? You're building and cultivating stuff, and then you work to protect it. Right? You work to protect the social circles that you're creating, um, the friends that you're making, the networks that you're making. So what, how does pride manifest itself in this work? Well, the first is people-pleasing. Um, right? This is, I work because I fear people's disapproval. I'm busy because I try to do too many things. And I do too many things because I say yes to too many people. I say yes to all these people because I want them to like me and I fear their disapproval. Some people call this low self-esteem, but people-pleasing is actually a form of pride or narcissism. Um, Second is pats on the back. I work because I I live for other people's praise. This is us who say, if I take on the majority of the work, I will be a hero to everyone in my group. Um, Or if I volunteer to be the secretary or the treasurer or the president of my organization, then everyone will love me. Never mind what this will mean for my friendships, my schoolwork, or if you're a Christian, um, for your walk with, with Jesus, so long as it means glory for me. The third P is proving myself. Now, God is not against ambition, but ambition for my own glory must not be confused with ambition for God's glory. Some of us never rest because we are still trying to prove something to our parents or to our ex-girlfriend um, or to our professor. 
Um, fourth P is power, right? I stay busy because I need to stay in control. Perfectionism. Um, I can't let up because I can't make a mistake. Do you all find yourself in, in one of these or more than one of these? I find myself in, in all of these. Um, and look at verses 1 and 2. The psalm is saying that if you are aimed at prosperity without God, it will be in vain. And if you are aimed at safety and security without God, it will be in vain. We can look at human history as the example of this. Right? It's a perpetual exercise in this. Nations and civilizations building great cultures with terrific armies only to be destroyed by another nation or civilization. Right? That's vanity on a macro level. And there's also vanity on a micro level. Um, a few years ago, Mary Clark and I were at an engagement party for one of her relatives, and the party was hosted um, by her relative's fiance's relative. Um, and it was uh, on the Potomac River in Maryland, and it was this, this beautiful, expansive house on this beautiful, expansive piece of property. And we went to this engagement party, and we're um, meeting, I end up meeting the, the folks who are hosting it and start talking to them for a while, and they have this beautiful home. Um, and I'm talking to him, and he asks me what I do, and I tell him I'm in seminary, and I'm preparing to be a pastor. And he looks at me, and he's disappointed and a little scared. Um, he says, that's really hard work. You're not going to make a lot of money. Are you sure you want to do that? Um, and he was really concerned with the prosperity and security of my family. Um, we had just had our first son, Leo, and um, I just remember, like, the anxiety in his, in his eyes as he was contemplating me doing something that wouldn't make us tons of money. Um, and as we talked, we got around to talking about family. Like I said, Leo had just been born. And he looked me in the eye, and he, um, like almost with a sadness in his eye, he said, if I could do it all over again, I would have spent more time with my kids. I missed out on their childhood. And there was this weird um, thing that we saw. I saw this man, um, and I saw him look at his son, who was then maybe 22, and just this longing that he had to have been a part of his son's life um, but to not really know him because he was so busy um, working so hard during his childhood. And so he says to me, don't work yourself to death. Spend time with your children. Your family is the most important thing you've got. So do you hear that, like, contradiction or confusion, this tension that he felt um, in what he said to me? On the one hand, make sure you make a lot of money to f for the prosperity and the security of your family. But on the other hand, if you work as hard as I did, you won't get to see your kids grow up and you miss out on your family. Right? And this is the mess that we're in. Um, we feel this tension between longing for security and prosperity and also the realization that if we bury ourselves in our work, we're somehow going to miss out on the most important part of our lives. I mean, I've talked to some of you all who are seniors um, who said to me, one of you in particular who said to me, um, the best advice I got as a freshman was don't get involved in everything, um, but instead use your free time and enjoy your time here. And I didn't listen to him. And now as a senior, I wish I'd listened to him. I wish I'd had more time. I wish I hadn't buried myself in all of my extracurriculars. Um, so look at verse 2. This is um, this man that I was talking about. His life was marked by anxious toil. Right? That's what he says to me. It's all worthless. It's all empty. And some of you are experiencing this right now. And his, this man's life and many people's lives are a testimony to this, that working harder is no answer to the emptiness of work. 
Um, uh, listen, I want you all to hear me on this, though, that it's okay to be busy. Um, it is good to work hard. Right? You can't love and serve others without um, giving of your time. You can't get a good education without putting in the work. So uh, I commend you to work hard and work long and work often, but self-sufficient work is always vanity, and it will always be anxious toil, and it will always be empty. So do you want another way? Is there another way for us? Um, well, in his grace, God has provided us another way, a better way. Look back at verse, look back at Psalm 127 with me. Um, look at the work of God in this psalm. We're told in verse 2 that God gives sleep to his beloved. In verse 3 to 5, he gives children to all people. And then in verse 1, we're told that he is the one who provides true, pros, true, pos, excuse me, true prosperity and true security. So first, God gives sleep to his beloved. What is this saying? It's saying you don't earn your sleep, right? Um, sleep is a gift from God, regardless of how efficient your day was or how hard you worked. And I know um, sleep is easier said than done, especially for those of us with insomnia, but it's not like you only get to sleep if you've gone to all your classes or you're only allowed to go to sleep if you spent whatever allotted time you had to spend in the library. Um, sleep is a gift that you receive, right? You don't, make, you don't even make yourself go to sleep. Think about this. You, you lay down and you expect sleep to happen to you, right? All, everything about it is a gift that you receive, um, you just put yourself in the posture of sleep and it happens. Um, this is a gift that God gives us simply by stopping. When we stop, he gives us sleep. Um, second, he says that God gives children to all people. And what he's saying in verses 3 to 5, this long section on children, basically what he's saying is that if you want to see a picture of God providing, regardless of our toil, look at children. Right? He has continued to provide children to humanity since the beginning of time, and he's not going to stop. Right? We don't talk about the problem of underpopulation. People talk about the problem of overpopulation, that God is so good on this of giving children that our world continues to grow in how many people there are. And I know that, I mean, Mary Clark and I have friends who've, who've struggled with infertility, and it's a real problem and a sad thing. Um, but overall, God does provide children. Over and over again, he provides children. Um, God gives sleep, God gives children, and God is the one who, who provides true prosperity and true security. So how does God do this? How does God provide true prosperity and true security? Well, he does this as he does all beautiful things. He does it in and through Jesus Christ. The testimony of the Bible and the testimony of the Christian church is that Jesus Christ was both fully man and fully God. And yet, fully man, he didn't sin. He did nothing out of vanity and pride. There was nothing that he did that was in vain. And yet, Jesus didn't do it all. Um, he didn't meet every need. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to go preach at another town. He would hide away to prayer, he, to pray. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of people on the planet. He spent 30 years in training and only three years of ministry. He did not try to do it all, and yet he did everything that God asked him to do. And don't think that Jesus can't sympathize with our busyness. Right? You have assignments that are due tomorrow. Well, Jesus had lepers who were asking to be healed. You have people blowing up your phone asking you to do stuff for them. Well, Jesus had demons calling him by name. 
You had stress. You have stress in your life. Jesus taught large crowds all over Judea and Galilee with people constantly trying to touch him and trick him and ultimately kill him. So how does God provide true security and true prosperity through Jesus? Well, we see this and we look at what Jesus has built. Jesus invested his time and his energy in a small group of people. And through his death and his resurrection and by the power of his spirit, that small group of men and women has been built into a truly prosperous house filled with people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And not only is Jesus' work truly prosperous, it's secure. The history of the Christian church is filled with people willing to lay down their lives, giving their lives away in the name of Jesus with no apparent concern for their own safety. Why? It's because their security isn't in their own lives, but it's in Christ. John 15 um, records a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples the night before he's crucified. Um, And he tells them this. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, I cut off. My father cuts away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you've been pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is... He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So are you tired of your vain busyness? Um, Do you want your work to actually count for something? Jesus says, abide in me. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do we abide in Jesus? How do we abide in Jesus? Well, Psalm 127 is a song of ascents. And this semester, we're reading the song of ascents, uh, which are these songs that were sung by the Hebrew people as they made their way from their towns up to Jerusalem for the festivals, these three festivals that happened each year. And so this would have been one of the songs on their lips as they traveled. Um, And what this means is that as a nation, as a civilization, they stopped their work three times a year and hiked from wherever they lived to Jerusalem to worship God. And can you imagine the anxiety they must have felt? Like, could you imagine being in the midst of whatever it is they're working on and then the day comes when it's time to go and they drop everything to go walk? How long it takes? Three days, four days, a week. Spend a week in Jerusalem and then walk back. And while they're doing that, they're singing this song. um, And their rest from their work, like their actual putting their tools down and walking up to Jerusalem, singing the song, um, was their obedience to this song, right? It's their walk to Jerusalem that helped them to believe that this was true. So my question for us that I want to leave us with tonight is how can you live like this true? Um, What can you do to pray this into your life? That you would engage in your schoolwork, in your relationships, in your extracurriculars, believing that unless God builds it, I build in vain, believing that unless God watches over it, I watch over it in vain. I'm going to leave you all with this. Um, In the uh, the book, The Power of Habits, written by a guy named Charles Duhigg, um, he tells the story of a man named Paul O'Neill. And Paul O'Neill in 1987 took over Alcoa, which was the aluminum company of America. 
And Alcoa is famous for making everything from the, the tin that was in Coke cans to um, the Hershey Kiss wrappers to the bolts that went in satellites. Like they made aluminum for everything. And in the 80s, Alcoa started to take a dive and started losing market share to its competitors. And everyone, all the shareholders, were, were starting to get ready for new leadership. Um, so people were really excited when O'Neill was announced as the new CEO of Alcoa. And as his first address to his shareholders, he opened his mouth and he said, I want to talk to you about worker safety. Every year, numerous Alcoa workers are injured so badly that they miss a day of work. Our safety record is better than the general American workplace, especially considering that our employees work with metals that are 1,500 degrees and machines that can rip a man's arm off. But it's not good enough. I intend to make Alcoa the safest company in America. I intend to go for zero injuries. He didn't say a word about profits. He didn't say a word about vision for innovation. He talked about worker safety. And after the meeting, um, Duhigg records that, that people actually ran out of the conference center. to get, One man ran to a phone and called his investors and said, sell all of your shares of Alcoa now. This, this, this company is going down. Um, and he said later, that was literally the worst piece of advice I gave in my entire career. Because within a year of O'Neill's speech, Alcoa's profits hit a record high, and by the time he retired in 2000, his company profits were five times higher than before he arrived. All right, so what happened? How did O'Neill make one of the largest, stodgiest, most potentially dangerous companies into a profit machine and a bastion of safety? He attacked one habit and then watched the changes ripple through the organization. Um, and Duhigg, in his book, argues that if we focus on one habit, Instead of the thousand areas that make up our busy lives, we are more likely to be successful, not just in that one area, but in many others. So why am I telling you this story? Well, how, how can we live like Psalm 127 is true? How can you go to work, go into your day here at Wake Forest, believing Jesus that apart from him you can do nothing, but in him you can bear incredible fruit? Well, um, my word to you tonight is just one thing. Just what if you changed one habit? Um, Kevin DeYoung in the book Crazy Busy says this. He says, think of what could happen if you made it your one firm, resolute goal to spend time every day in the word of God in prayer. That's the one habit. Spend time every day in the word of God in prayer. You'd probably decide you need to get to bed earlier so you have time in the morning to read and pray. And because you went to bed earlier, you'd be more careful about what you eat late at night. And then you would think twice about watching that show you had no intention of watching or rummaging around on the Internet for nothing in particular. And that's not even taking into account the spiritual benefits, that by spending time with the Lord and the Word and prayer, we are likely to gain new perspectives on our stress and anxiety. Um, There's a pastor named Paul Tripp who wrote this to, to pastors, but I think it applies to all of us. He says, I am more and more convinced that what gives a ministry its motivations, its perseverance, its humility, its joy, its tenderness, its passion and grace is the devotional life of the one doing the ministry. When I daily admit how needy I am, daily meditate on the grace of the Lord Jesus, and daily feed on the restorative wisdom of his word, I am propelled to share with others the grace that I am daily receiving at the hands of my Savior. So if you hear this tonight and you're thinking, wow, I actually want my life to not be in vain and the work that I do to not be in vain, um, I encourage you to, to make this decision, to, to, in, to do this one habit, this one thing that could change and re the ripple effects could reorder the rest of your life. Um, how to do this. 
Um, five undistracted minutes are better than 30 distracted minutes. Um, take a short passage of the Bible, read it, pray it back to God. Ask God to meet with you. Pray your life to him. And if this is something new to you and you don't know how to pray, um, you're in good company. When Jesus was doing ministry, his friends didn't know how to pray, and they asked him. They said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And he answered by teaching them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so what I'd like for us to do tonight is to, is to do this, to actually to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Um, and if musicians, if you all want to come up while we're praying, and then we're going to sing our last song together. So let's do it. Let's stand and let's, um, let's pray our last prayer together. Pray the Lord's Prayer together. It's written on the back of your bulletin, um, if you'd want to read it there. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.